As many of you know, we've begun a process of examining how we are structured as a church and talking about what it would look like to be an elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally-governed church. And uh, this morning, we are now in week three of our series, God's Design for the Church. We have looked at what is an elder-led church. We saw that the office of elder is one of leadership or oversight focused on the spiritual needs of the church. Last week, we looked at what is a deacon-served church and saw that the office of deacon is one of service focused on the physical and administrative needs of the church. And this morning, we're looking at what is a congregationally governed church. While the deacons serve the church and the elders lead the church, we do see in the scriptures that the church The gathered assembly of believers, the members, are given a level of authority, the last and final authority under God's word in the church. So let's look at Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your son's sake, amen. Amen. Well, congregationalism. (laughs) There may be some of you who hear that word and a little fear creeps in. Maybe of a church with no structure. Or, or members making decisions about everything. There's a, there's a story, I'm not sure if it's true, but there was a church where the pastor decided it would be best to let the congregation decide what color curtains to hang in the sanctuary. And so at the members' meeting, half the church made it clear that they wanted white curtains. And the other half of the church made it very clear as well that they wanted red curtains. And for the rest of the meeting, no church business was discussed. Only arguments on what color curtains to hang in the sanctuary. And so the pastor decided to close out the meeting. He had to break up a few fights in the parking lot. He went home and tried to figure out what to do next. He then decided to call up a professional 
he hired a interior designer and explained the problem. And so the interior designer thought about it for a while and came to the conclusion that pink curtains would be the best solution because that's in between red and white. And so the pastor ordered pink curtains and had them hung up before church the next Sunday. So later that Sunday, the members and the pastor met, and a unanimous decision was made by the congregation that the pastor would have to find a new job. <laughs> is this what congregationalism is about? Out-of-control member meetings, members voting on every decision, no matter how small, no trust in the leadership, now, I share that funny illustration to point out that's not what congregationalism is. And I hope this morning that you do see that the congregation has been given authority to do some things in the church. The congregation has a job in the church. But it's not to decide what color curtains to hang in the sanctuary or what color carpet to lay down or what sermon series the pastor should preach on next. But what we see from the scriptures is that the congregation is responsible for doctrine, membership, discipline, and appointing church officers. Now, to be clear, Jesus is Lord of the church. He is the one who has ultimate authority. It's not the elders. It's not the deacons. It's not the congregation. Jesus is the one who established the church. Jesus is the one who purchased it with his blood. And he rules over it by his word. Jesus is the one who gives the church its mission statement. In Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gives the mission to the church. And he also tells us how to operate as the church. We saw two weeks ago that he gives us the gift of elders who lead the church. And he provides deacons to serve the physical needs of the church. But he also tells the whole church that they have responsibilities. They have delegated authority from him to do certain things. And so the main point of my message this morning, what I hope you see in the scriptures, is that the congregation of a local church has final authority under God's word in matters of doctrine, membership, discipline, and appointment of church offices. The congregation of a local church has final authority under God's word in matters of doctrine, membership, discipline, and appointment to church offices. In other words, it's the responsibility of the congregation to confess and uphold sound doctrine. It's the responsibility of the congregation to add to their number those who profess Christ. 
It's the responsibility of the congregation to remove those who profess Christ but are living lives that contradict that profession and to appoint those who will lead and serve the church. All right, so let's look at the congregation and doctrine. Church members have been commissioned by God to guard the gospel. The congregation is responsible for doctrine. Well, you might push back and say, well, Pastor Tony, didn't you say that the elders are responsible for the doctrine of the church? And I would say, yes. And I would also say that the whole church has the responsibility to guard the doctrine of the church, to help preserve the gospel. Brothers and sisters, those who are members of this church, Calvary Baptist Church, your job when you joined this church, whether you knew it or not, your job is to help preserve the gospel and the gospel ministry in this church. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the deacon's job. It's also your job. Think of Paul's amazement or astonishment in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Why don't you turn there? Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. False teachers have infiltrated the church, and they've begun pulling people away from the gospel. What does Paul say? Galatians 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished. He's talking to the churches in Galatia. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice here that he's not rebuking the pastors. He's rebuking the churches in Galatia, the members. And then he says, look, but even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He says, I don't care if a pastor comes to you, or an apostle, or even an angel from heaven. If they come with a different gospel, Calvary Baptist Church, your responsibility is to fire that pastor to remove them from leadership in the church. You are called to protect the gospel. Paul is amazed that these churches in Galatia aren't doing it. He says he's astonished. He's astonished because it was their responsibility and they did nothing. It wasn't supposed to be Paul's job to tell the church to get rid of false teachers. They should have done it. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Do you want to be that type of people? 
Do you want to be that type of church? We're called to guard the gospel, to cherish the gospel, so that we or others around us don't turn away from listening to the truth. If you care about the gospel, then you must care about guarding and protecting the gospel in this church. And so if a leader, whether that be the lead pastor, an elder, a Sunday school teacher, if they begin to stray from sound doctrine, if they stray from what we affirm as a church, the positions of our church, what we believe that the Bible says, it's the duty of the church body to call it out and remove that person. And then guarding the doctrine of the church isn't just holding the leaders accountable, but it also plays out as you interact with other members in the church. If another member starts to doubt the gospel, well, it's your job to remind them of the doctrine of justification. If a member says they don't really feel like they need to evangelize, well, maybe you need to remind them of the doctrine of hell. If a member begins to doubt if God actually loves them, well, then it's your job to remind them of the doctrine of the love of God. If a member begins to stray from central doctrines like the divinity of Christ, well, then it's your job to search the scriptures and show them from God's word that it affirms the divinity of Christ. This is not only the pastor's job or the elder's job. It's yours as well. Members guard the doctrine of the church, not by just affirming the confession of faith once when they constitute as a church. Members guard the doctrine of the church by encouraging the other members of the church to live in light of those truths. The congregation is responsible for doctrine. And it's also responsible for membership, who they bring in and who they put out. Take a look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. It says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter, who represents the apostles, he's the leader, he replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. All right, so what's happening here? In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the apostles who they think he is. And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus affirms the answer and says that it is God who revealed that to you, Peter, not flesh and blood. This is divine revelation. And then Jesus says that he's going to build his church on this. I think we've heard this verse so many times that we don't realize the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Do you realize that this is the first of only three times in the entire Gospels that Jesus uses that word church? Only three times in the Gospels. And so when he does, we must pay close attention. So now what exactly is Jesus building his church on? Is it Peter? Or is it the confession that Peter makes? What is it? It's both. It's both. On that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and on the one who confesses that confession. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Jesus isn't going to build his church just on words, and he's not going to build his church just on people. He's going to build his church on people who believe the right gospel words. Jesus builds his church on a confessor confessing the right confession. There has to be a right confession of who Jesus is. And then Jesus talks about giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter and possibly the apostles and says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So what's happening here is that Jesus is giving Peter the authority to do what he has just done, to act as God's official representative for affirming gospel confessions and confessors. But now what's this binding and loosing? Bible scholars talk about binding and loosing as a judicial activity. It's the authority given to judge. And in this case, to consider a person's confession and their life and be able to make an official judgment on behalf of heaven. And so Jesus is giving the apostles authority for declaring on earth who is a kingdom citizen. Whoever holds the keys of the kingdom has the authority to listen to someone's gospel words and to look at the way that they live their life and then give a judgment. Exercising the keys of the kingdom is exercising judgment. Think about a judge. Right? The, the judge doesn't make the law. They have to interpret the law, and they pronounce a judgment. And so in the same way, whoever holds the keys does not make a person a Christian, but they will consider someone's confession and make a public pronouncement on whether they're on the inside or the outside. And not only does Jesus give the authority to the apostles, but he gives these keys to local churches of ordinary men and women who believe in Jesus. How do we know this? Well, we see it in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus uses the same language he used in Matthew chapter 16. 
And instead of talking about the authority being given to the apostles, we see it given to another group of people other than the apostles. So let's look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20 again. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So in this passage, we see a situation in which a brother is sinning, and his sin is out of step with his confession of faith. And in this situation, Jesus talks about four rounds of confrontation, right? The goal in this process is for that person to pursue repentance. And another goal in this process is to be able to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. In this passage, we see the responsibility that church members have for one another, have you ever thought about that? When you join a church, you are committing to take responsibility for the spiritual growth of everyone around you. All right, so what does this four-step process look like? Well, first, a member sees a brother in sin or is sinned against by them and confronts that person in private. Second, if there's no repentance, the process is repeated with two or three witnesses involved. The third step, if there's still no repentance, the matter will be taken before the whole church. The whole assembly of the church will be made aware of the situation. And if they are still unrepentant, they are placed outside of the church and treated as an outsider. Sometimes this is called church discipline or excommunication. But notice in verse 18, Jesus brings up the keys of the kingdom again. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And in this verse, the you is plural, and it's in reference to the local church. Jesus is not addressing the apostles He's not addressing the universal global church. He's talking to and thinking of the local church. And so the local church appears to have been given the apostolic keys of the kingdom. And so now the local church, the members, have the authority of binding and loosening to be able to stand in front of a confessor, consider their confession, and how they live their life and announce an official judgment on heaven's behalf. All right, so think about how our membership process works. 
when we receive new members, right, they're examined by the pastors for their confession. That's why we say we have heard their testimony. I've heard them articulate the gospel. Right? For those of you considering membership, know that in our membership meeting, I will ask you, explain the gospel to me in your own words. So we make sure that they understand the good news of the gospel. We make sure that they're baptized believers. We make sure that they understand what it means to be a member of our church. And, and then as they commit, they, they covenant with us as a church to the best of their ability in the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life and also affirm the doctrines that we believe to be true. So now what happens? The whole church votes to either receive them or not receive them based on their confession. Do you see how this plays out? We collectively hold the keys to the kingdom. There's some back-end work that the pastors do, but that does not make someone a member of this church. If you have a membership meeting with me, that does not make you a member of this church. The congregation as a whole has the authority to do it. The church looks at a person's life and their confession to make sure that it's consistent with the gospel. Maybe some of you here are wondering, why would Jesus do this? Why would he put so much authority in the hands of just normal, everyday Christians? Well, because every normal, everyday Christian has the Spirit of God living inside of them. They're qualified to pass judgment on Christ's church because they have the Holy Spirit. And it's the members who do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, Paul, Paul says that he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why did he give them? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who does the work of ministry? The saints, the church. Who equips the saints for the work of ministry? The pastors, the elders, through the ministry of the word. Paul continues, for the building up the body of Christ. Who builds up the body of Christ? The saints do. And the pastors train the saints to build up the body of Christ. And then Paul says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Calvary Baptist Church, I want you to be grown up in maturity. It's my deep desire that you receive maturity with the stature measured with the fullness of Christ. Well, how does that work? Well, according to this text, it works as the elders equip you to do the work of the ministry in building up the body of Christ. And so part of doing the work of ministry is to exercise the authority that has been given to you by Jesus in matters of church membership. All right, so now what happens after someone gets on the inside of the church? Well, what's your responsibility when someone's a member? 
That's where we move to the congregation and discipline. We just looked at Matthew 18, and we saw this process of confronting a brother or sister who's caught in sin. Right? You start off where, with that private confrontation, and yet if that person remains unrepentant, the process leads to making that unrepentance more of a public matter, bringing it before the whole church. Jesus says to tell it to the church. And if that person is still unrepentant, then Jesus says to let that person be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Or in other words, treat them like an outsider. For many of us, this sounds unloving or harsh. Let me give you an example from 1 Corinthians and how this plays out. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says to the church in Corinth, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Paul says that they are tolerating a type of behavior that pagans, that the unbelieving world doesn't even tolerate. This is supposed to be the church. He says, for a man has his father's wife. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And so Paul says to the church, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So a man inside the church, a church member, is sleeping with his father's wife, and Paul instructs them to mourn over that sin rather than tolerate it. He tells them to remove him from their fellowship rather than ignore the situation. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church here. He's not speaking to the pastor or the elders but the entire church and says, you are to remove the one who has done this thing. In verse 3, he says, I pronounce judgment on this man. And then in verse 4, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say, hey, elders, in your quiet closed-door meetings. No, he says, church, church in Corinth, when you are assembled publicly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Here, that word power could also be translated as authority. The church has been given the power or authority of Jesus Christ to execute this judgment. So church, with the power and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ that has been given to you, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In removing that person from the church, you might think, wow, that's harsh. That's so unloving. Calvary, this is the most loving thing that you can do to a person in that situation. 
Because this man is living a life of self-deception. He's driving down a road and the bridge is out and we're waving, hey, turn around, turn around, come back. And he's not listening. If someone is unrepentant and pursuing sin in such a way that they're not listening to the people around them, you remove them to wake them up and, and see the seriousness of their actions and the potential peril to their soul. Because refusal to repent is a sign of unbelief. We're taking it that seriously after all because Scripture says very clearly that those who practice immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you are called to hold the keys of the kingdom as earthly representatives of the church, as an outpost of the kingdom of God. You remove them from the church so that they may be saved. That's the goal of church discipline, repentance and salvation, that they would turn from their sin. I've heard so many abuses of this passage and the passage in Matthew 18 and how we're supposed to treat the person who's receiving the church discipline. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 18, to treat that person like a Gentile, or a tax collector. And then you see in this passage, it seems that the goal is for them to be saved. Some churches have taken these passages, executed church discipline, and told their members to shun the person who was disciplined. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. How, how are you supposed to treat a, a Gentile, a tax collector, an outsider, an unbeliever? You invite them to church. You share the gospel with them. You pray for them. You desire for them to understand the gospel and see their sin so that they would be saved in the day of the Lord. Church, church discipline is necessary, and it's the most loving thing that we can do towards someone who is unrepentant. It's also interesting, though, if you move to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses 6 to 8, Paul seems to be speaking of someone who was removed from the church, they repented, and they were restored. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Paul says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What a beautiful passage of scripture. The Corinthian congregation had exercised church discipline on this man. We don't know who this man is. I really want to think that it's the guy from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but we don't know for sure. And in punishing this man, they did so as... A majority. Do you see that in the text there? Majority. Do you want to know what it means in the Greek? Majority. So the majority of the church must have voted. So there was a majority and a minority. Another argument for congregationalism. And the punishment or discipline of him, Paul says, was enough. 
It worked. It looks like this man had repented, and so Paul is, is, is encouraging the church to forgive him and welcome him back into membership. But is Paul doing this? Is Paul the one welcoming him back to the membership? No, Paul isn't exhorting the church to do this because Paul realizes that this is the church's responsibility. The church has the final authority under God's word in matters of church membership and church discipline. Now, in those cases when someone is removed from membership, in those, those are extreme cases of unrepentant sin, right? Those, that four-step process, that needs to happen. And so this is not like a, a call to go headhunting. Um, but this is in cases where there is unrepentant, blatant sin. Church discipline has to happen. But in repenting, that person will be restored. This is a pretty serious text. But this is the responsibility of the church. And it's necessary for the long-term health of the church in order that unrepentant sin doesn't wreak havoc on the church body. And also so that the watching world doesn't see us and question the validity of the gospel. So when a church member starts living in disobedience to Jesus and refuses to repent of their sin, the church has the responsibility to step in and exercise discipline. Discipline means that the gathered church removes that person from membership, tells them that they are no longer confident in their profession of faith, and that they are no longer welcome to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But it's all done out of love and concern and in hopes that they would repent and be saved. So the church is responsible for doctrine, membership, discipline, and also appointing those who serve in church offices. We covered a lot of this last week when we looked at Acts chapter 6. There was a need, a problem arose, the Greek widows were being overlooked, the apostles called for a large members meeting, and they told the church that we can't neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. What, what the Lord has called us to do. And so they asked the church to select seven men, seven qualified men. We see this in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. The apostles say, Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, the entire church congregation, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Notice the congregation is being treated as the final authority in appointing these prototype deacons. The apostles were hand, handing over, or better yet, recognizing the authority that had been given to the congregation and encouraged them to select these seven men. All right, so what about elders? Well, some have viewed uh, Titus' assignment in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Where Paul writes, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Some say that this is evidence that elders are a self-appointing body. And so they believe that congregational votes regarding church membership are unbiblical. 
They don't, they, they understand that the biblical pattern is one qualified pastor who appoints a new one. But that's not likely what Paul intends by commanding Titus to appoint elders. Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders, but he does not specify in this text what that appointment process looks like. However, other texts like Acts chapter 6 help us see a clearer pattern on how to look at qualified candidates, how they're supposed to be appointed to an official church office. And so we would say that elders are also appointed by the congregation. The same is true of missionaries. In Acts chapter 15, verse 22, Luke writes, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The whole church authorized missionaries to be sent out. So the congregation of a local church has final authority under God's word in matters of doctrine, membership, discipline, and appointing church offices. Now, this does not mean that because we see congregationalism in the Bible that we will never get it wrong. We are not inerrant. Only God's word is inerrant. Will the local church exercise the keys perfectly? No. It will make mistakes just as every other authority makes mistakes. But the fact that it makes mistakes just as presidents do and parents do doesn't mean that it should not be practiced. In fact, all the other structures that we see in other churches have their faults. In churches where the congregation has no voice and elders rule, the church still votes. They just vote with their feet and go find a new church. There's no perfect church structure. But I hope how you see that how the authority of the elders and the authority of the congregation work together in this structure. They don't contradict one another. The elders help teach the congregation and they equip them for the work of the ministry. And the congregation submits to their leaders and obeys them, letting them do this with joy. The elders lead the day-to-day life of the church while the congregation possesses the final rule over all things. Just kidding, certain things. It would be chaotic for the church to vote on everything. Nothing would be getting done. So it'd be, it'd be crazy for the church to vote on things like the carpet or the window curtains, but they are responsible to make sure that the gospel is protected. They vote on adding to their number new members. They vote on serious matters of church discipline when members are unrepentant. They vote on who is qualified to serve as elders and deacons and missionaries. Here at Calvary, we vote on the budget. There's no command in Scripture to do this, but we're just affirming as a congregation that we want to use our resources in a certain way, and so it's important for everyone to know how we're going to steward it and for everyone to be on the same page. We vote on missions and ministry partners. 
When we devote designated monies to send to them, why? Why do we do this? Because we're tying ourselves as a body to that missions group or missionaries' work. This is what a congregationally governed church does. And so if someone starts not showing up on the Lord's Day, church members should go after that person. Not in a prideful and judgmental way that makes that person feel like we're just keeping tabs on them, but in a loving, grace-filled way, letting them know that they're missed and that meeting together is important for our mutual encouragement and the worship of our great God. If the pastor starts teaching false doctrine, if I or Pastor Scott or a small group leader or a Sunday school teacher teaches false doctrine, we should be removed from our position in the church. And the church members are the ones who have the authority to do that. If someone in our church is living in unrepentant sin, and we've gone through all those steps that we see Jesus give in Matthew 18, it is the responsibility of the members to exercise church discipline on that person and excommunicate them from the membership and treat them as an outsider. Remember, that means that they're still welcome to attend our services. Other members should come alongside them and preach the gospel to them. And we should be praying for the repentance. And if they do repent, that we would welcome them back. It's pretty clear that the biblical argument for a congregationally governed church is deeply rooted in God's word. Under the lordship of Jesus Christ, under the authority of the divinely given elders who lead the last and final court of appeal in matters of doctrine, membership, discipline, and appointing of church offices is the congregation itself. All these things are essential for a healthy church. And Jesus died for this church. Jesus died for you. Don't forget that we were all lost in sin, dead in our trespasses and sins, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, church. God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live the life that we could never live. He died on the cross and died a death that we deserve. And he rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and offering forgiveness and new life to all who repent of their sins and believe in him. And Jesus promises to come again and restore all things to himself and usher in a new heaven and new earth where his people, the church, will reign forever and ever and enjoy the glory of God. That's the gospel that this church is built upon. That's the gospel that saves sinners and brings them into the kingdom, brings them into the church. 
That's the gospel that is offered to unrepentant people who are put out of the church. That's the gospel that the elders are called to preach and teach. That's the gospel that fuels the service ministry of the deacons. And that's the gospel that we as the church are called to guard and protect and cherish. So let's commit to embracing our role within the body of Christ, working together in unity to honor God and fulfill his purpose for the church.